So we are in Genesis chapter 4 today. Genesis chapter 4. We've been going through this series called The Stolen Kingdom. And we're talking about, with kind of an emphasis on spiritual beings and the, the effect they've had on God's plan or God's desire for his creation. So we talked about how on the fourth day of creation, when, when God created the stars, that those are that's talking about spiritual beings. It's talking about angels. And we talked a little bit about the, the serpent in Genesis 3. That's where we just kind of left the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent, the fall. And as you go through your Bible, then you come here to Genesis 4, uh, a place that doesn't actually look to be about spiritual warfare, although it is. Now, one of the things that's incredible about this story, I think it's one of the most profound stories in the Bible, and this is one of the things Genesis does, and it's not the only place, but these, these stories are written in just a few verses, a very short space. And what that does is it invites us to read them, to chew on them, to kind of get inside them and wrestle with them, and what we find is the more we do so, the more we grow and come back to them, the more we find in them. And so you've probably heard the story of Cain and Abel many times. My, my experience is every time after I go through a, a period of growth, I come back to a story like this, I see things that I didn't see before. We're meant to chew on it. And I want to do that a little bit with you today. I want to chew on it a little bit. And so in this story, it's after the fall, we see that things are not going well. Because just a chapter ago, Adam and Eve, they have to be talked into their sin. But here we have a story where Cain isn't able to be talked out of it, even by God. And so we're going to go a verse or two at a time through the story this morning. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, if you were just reading this story for the first time, you would probably be surprised that this book called the Bible isn't much shorter. Because we know that just a chapter ago, Genesis 3, verse 15, we are told that the offspring of the woman will defeat the serpent. Right? Pastor Ben talked about this two weeks ago. I will put enmity between your, you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so if you were reading this for the first time, if you didn't already know what was about to happen, I think you would set a lot of hope on Cain. This looks like it might be the one to crush the serpent. Unfortunately, he does not take that role at all. Moving on in the verse, later she or in the in chapter four, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. We have kind of a picture. Of Cain and Abel presenting their sacrifices here. And you see in the picture at least some foreshadowing in the look on Cain's face as he looks over at Abel. A look of jealousy. 
And if nothing else, we see that, that while Abel's focus and attention is on the Lord, Cain's is caught up in his brother. It's sort of a foreshadowing of what is to come. Now, these are the very first sacrifices in the Bible. And, and it's interesting that sacrifices are right here at the beginning. And one of the things I think that tells us is that sacrifice is close to the heart of the Christian faith. It's something that's very, very important for us to know. And so if we, I mean, we don't have the law yet. We don't have the laws in Leviticus or the prescribed sacrifices there. But still, they are sacrificing something. Cain, some of what he's grown, Abel, some of his flock that he leads. And so you might wonder, like, what's, what's going on here? What's the sacrifice about before sacrifice is commanded? And I think it's because the idea of sacrifice in Christian faith is bigger than just what we find two books from now when we get all these regulations about what animals or what crops and how and when. Sacrifice is bigger as an idea than that. A sacrifice is when you give something up for the sake of something better. A sacrifice is when you give something up for the sake of something better. And this is something we see and know in our lives all the time. Now we have the Levitical sacrifices. We know we've preached uh, through those and talked about them a little bit, about how they're, they're sort of like meetings with the Lord. We come before him and almost like sharing a meal together with the Lord. But these are, these are hard, these are painful things, because in the ancient world, to give up animals and meat was difficult, because it was rare. You could say it was very expensive to do, but it was this opportunity to meet with the Lord, to, to value your relationship with him, being in right relationship with him more than having a plentiful flock. And for us, that happens, that works out in similar ways. In everything from when we sacrifice good food, right, for the, the better thing of company. You have someone over for a meal, and you are giving up some of what you have for something better, to share a meal with someone you love. We see this happen when you decide to sacrifice an hour of sleep to get up early to do your devotions. You're giving up one thing for something better. This is something that works itself out over and over and over again in the Christian life. So then moving on here in chapter 4. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. I'm not going to talk very much about why. God preferred Abel's sacrifice over Cain's, although there's some really important things there. We just don't have time for everything in the passage today. I want to focus in on Cain's reaction. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, and Cain is very angry, and his face was downcast. What's happening here is pride. You see, pride is a disordered affection, a disordered love. Love for yourself is a good thing. You should love yourself. God wants you 
to love yourself. The trick is we're called to love ourselves in the appropriate amount compared to other loves that we have. For example, if my love of self comes before my love for God, I've disordered that love. It's not in the place it's supposed to be. We find in the New Testament over and over again, we're supposed to consider others more important than ourselves. So when we, when we care for ourselves in a way that takes away from the people around us, we've disordered our affection. It's pride again. Or when we see ourselves as better than the people around us, it's pride. It's an affection or a love that's in the wrong place. It's too high on the list. Cain's pride is what's going on here. Now, this story is about pride. I want to take a moment to talk about its opposite. And I don't mean opposite in a good way, like the, the mirror image of pride, which I call false pride. Pride is something like, I look at other people and I think that I am better than them. And false pride is something like, I look at other people and I realize I am the worst. I am so low, I don't know that people or God could love me because I'm so bad. False pride isn't as destructive as pride proper. Right? But in some ways, it's even more insidious because... You can sometimes talk yourself into thinking that it's humility. But false pride is destructive to the person who holds it. If you're here today and you carry that belief around in you, maybe you've never voiced it, maybe you're afraid to, but it resonates with you. I know I'm so bad. God himself couldn't possibly love me. I want you to hear that that's a lie and that it's untrue. This false pride is, is self-destructive. It's self-harmful. And in fact, a lot of the times when people are afflicted with it or struggle with it, self-harm is something that they do. If that is you, please talk to someone about it. But this story in Genesis 4 is Cain's pride proper. And there's, there's a couple of things that I think really set off pride, and they happen here in the story. If you struggle with pride, there are a couple of things that really get you angry. Three things. The first one is this. A person who struggles with pride gets angry when they don't get the blessing or the good thing that they think they deserve. You believe that you're the one who should get that promotion, and you don't. You believe you should get a better gift than you do, or more attention than you do, or more favor than you do, and that rankles. That's one of the ways that pride is stirred up. It's even worse when you don't get the thing and someone else does. It's not just that you didn't get the promotion. That person whom you know you are better than got it instead. And the pride rankles. Now there's injustice too. Could there be a time when you actually do deserve it and it goes somewhere else unfairly? Of course, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when the issue is a disordered affection in your own heart. And the third thing, so when you don't get what you think you deserve, when you see other people get what you think you deserve, and then when something gets in the way of your pride, something prevents you from acting, living it out, or holding that belief, like being dressed down or called out, Pride does not like 
to be called out. And we see all these things happen in this short story. Cain is not receiving the blessing he thinks he deserves. He is the elder brother. The favor is supposed to rest on him. And instead, this theme that we see go all the way through the scriptures, starting with the, the elders in creation on day four being coming subservient to human beings, right? The younger being favored over the older, Abel being favored over Cain, Jacob being favored over Esau, and on and on and on. It happens here, and it makes Cain angry. God's favor first should be his. And it's not just that God didn't find favor in what he brought, or give favor to what he brought. It's that he had to watch Abel get it. The older brother doesn't get the kudos, and he has to watch his younger brother do it. I'm not an older sibling, but I imagine that those of you that are can remember times in your childhood when you didn't get something, and you had to watch it go to your younger sibling, and that rankled particularly badly. And then... Cain gets called out. Verse 6, I don't, it doesn't say that God did not say this until they were apart. But I find that if, if Cain and Abel are still together when these next words from God come, that would, uh, that would make them bite particularly badly. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God says to Cain, why are you angry? Just because you didn't get something that because of your twisted up affections you think you deserved is not a good reason for anger, certainly not anger at Abel. And yet, Cain finds himself, that white bar is not supposed to be there. That sort of takes literally the furrowed brow is how you know he's in the eyebrows. He's got the angry eyebrows, and that's uh, that picture is totally ineffective. I'm sorry about that. Imagine a person who looks really mad, because that's what that picture is. The truth God speaks here is something that we people who struggle with pride do not ever want to hear. And it's this. Sometimes when life isn't going the way you want, it's your fault. Sometimes. Hear me. Not always. There are times that a person does not receive the good thing they would like to receive, and it has nothing to do with them, and it may not be an issue of pride. A person gets sick. A person is born with a disability, a person is in an abusive household. Those things are not, not set at the foot of the person who suffers them. But if we are being honest and we look at times when our life has not gone exactly the way we want, when a thing has not worked out in exactly the way we would like it to, we have to be honest and say, I have something to do with that. But if you, like me, struggle with pride, in those moments your desire isn't to say, and that's my bad. Your desire is to cast blame around anywhere except on yourself. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I imagine if I did, 
If you were being honest with yourself, when something happens, you get called out, life doesn't go the way you want, how many of you feel an urge to blame others first? I imagine many hands would go in the air. This is what pride does to us. It causes us to blame others. And sometimes, whether we struggle with pride or not, when life is not going the way we would like, we need to look at our own choices to see why. And then God says this. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Paul talks about sin in an interesting way, in the same way that God speaks of sin here, like an animal crouching, ready to pounce. Paul talks about sin this way. In Romans 5.12, he talks about sin entering the world like it's a force that exerts its power on us. In Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. In other words, Adam and Eve's failure, their sin in the garden, opened the door for sin to enter. And now it works on us. It messes with us. It harms us. We're infected with it. There is sin within, but also pressure from without. It's spiritual warfare. Now the sin within, the infection that happens, that's where Cain's pride comes from. But God describes it as crouching at your door and wanting to have you. I've been trying to figure out how exactly to say this, because the, the, the way God describes it is like saying the force of sin wants to pounce on you in a creative act. And if you let it, your offspring will be the sinful action. So sin wants to pounce on you. And if you let it, the offspring from that union is a sinful action. What's inside of you is stirred up. And then this force of sin, one of the, the, the demons who belong to the evil one, who tempt us, who push us, who desire to make us stumble, who desire to make us rebel, who desire to make us act out and harm ourselves or those around us, if we allow that, then what happens is a sinful action. God is talking about spiritual warfare right here in Genesis 4. And we see that, that the Apostle John thinks the same way. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, he says, don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. In other words, when the moment came and Cain had to choose his allegiance between the Lord or sin, he chose sin. He went willingly to a place that he knew was wrong, that he knew was evil, and that he knew was harmful. Lord, help our allegiance always be to you. What does this look like? It looks like, have you ever felt something come over you and you do something that you know you shouldn't and then afterward you look back on what you've done and you think, how did that even happen? 
What was I thinking? Why did I do that? What came over me? People struggle with gluttony. And they may find that for 23 hours and 30 minutes a day, they can do well. But then all of a sudden, something comes over them. They eat and eat and eat. And then afterwards, they say, why? I didn't even really want to. Lust with what we look at, spend our time with. Anger, a temper rises up. And there's that moment where we make a choice and we just let it run away with us. And then later, we realize all the things we said, all the things we did. We wish we could go and take them back because we didn't mean them. Something just came over us. And so God is warning Cain here. Don't give sin a foothold. Don't make a practice of submitting to it. Because what we find in our lives is that when we submit to it, more and more, it gets harder and harder to resist. If you let your temper run away from you over and over again, when you finally get around to resisting, the resistance is so much harder. If you live a life of greed, pursuing possessions and accumulation, and then you just decide to try to be different, when the rubber meets the road, you'll find a very difficult time letting go of things. Whatever your sin is, this is true. The more you let it run you, the more it will. Fortunately, we are, not, we are not expected to resist on our own or by our own power. The Lord and His Spirit are with us and enables us to do so, but that does not mean it doesn't get harder the more we, sub we give our allegiance to sin. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? So Cain leads his brother away from the mountain and kills him. Then God asks the question, and it's just like in chapter 3 when he asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Do you remember? They eat the apple. They realize that they're naked, and in their shame they hide. And God comes strolling, and he says, where are you? God already knows the answer. He's asking the question, though. He does the same thing here. Where's Abel? God already knows. The reason he's asking the question, I think, is because there's something very good and important about confession. Pastor Ben spoke about this a few weeks ago. Confession is not, does not contain a, a spiritual power that brings forgiveness, but it does allow us to report on the movements of the enemy, Report on what God is doing, what the enemy is doing, the warfare happening within us. But something else, too. If we do not confess to a sin that's, that's happening within us, even to God, if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't speak it, if we don't repent of it, then it, the root grows deeper. The sin gets worse. If there is a secret sin in your life that you struggle with, hear me. Confess first to God, and then I urge you to find an appropriate person and confess to them as well. Not because when you hear them say God forgives you, that that's when the forgiveness happens. 
but because there's something so soothing to the soul to hear God's grace spoken into our hardest, most shameful moments. It's one of the things that's incredible about the time that Pastor Ben and I have when I have messed up and I say, Ben, you know, this is what, this is what I did this week. And he reminds me of God's grace, power, it's meaningful. Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. It seems like Cain thinks that the answer is no, and he's wrong. The answer to that question is yes. <coughs> it was true for him, and it's also true for us. Excuse me. <coughs> Long pipe. One of the things that we learn from this story is that our sins don't just affect. <coughs> I swear it's wrong pipe. I'm not coveting. <coughs> our sins don't just affect us. You might think that you can keep them private, that no one else is going to get hurt, that you're getting away with them, but that's not true. <coughs> they are changing your heart. And then when sin pounces on you, when the evil one, one of his demons, tempts you, sin will have an easier time using you to bring harm to others. We have a responsibility to care for our own soul, in part, so that we can be better for caring for each other. This is kind of a weird time to be a preacher. There's so much going on in the world, and one of the things that I think is just truer than it's ever been before is people are wound up, very sensitive about a couple of different things. Perhaps it's, it's COVID, and you're very, very bothered by people's opinions being different. Perhaps it's the election, and you cannot imagine being friends or knowing someone or someone being able to be a Christian and thinking differently about the election. Perhaps it's some of the, the justice issues that are present in our culture today, things like race or the police or so on. People are really tender, and we've pushed on some of this the last few weeks, and I wrestled with whether or not to push again. It's not really in me not to, so we're going to talk about voting. One thing I will never do from the pulpit, I think I can say that confidently, is tell you who you should vote for or how I'm going to vote. In fact, until recently, it was my commitment to not tell people how I was going to vote. Because as a pastor, I don't want anyone to make their choices based on what I'm going to do. I want you to wrestle in your own heart with your faith and make that choice. But there is something I feel absolutely confident about. When we step into a ballot box and we cast our vote, this is one important opportunity for us to be our brother's keeper. And it's important to vote with your Christian principles in mind. So you ask the question, how can I best care for others with my vote? Now, hopefully, whoever you've already decided to vote for fits that. 
hopefully, whatever decision you've made, you can honestly say, this is how best I care for others. But perhaps you've not yet asked yourself that question. And if that's the case, hear me. Do so. It's a thing that doesn't happen in our lives often, and it matters. Can you vote in a way that considers others' needs? Can you care for others with your vote? And of course, we should do the same with our words, with our actions. We should do the same with every part of our lives. But today, in our culture at this moment, that's my question. Have you asked yourself, how do I best care for others with my vote? I think that you, many of you, will come to one answer and many of you to another, but I want you to ask the question. Finishing up the story here. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you drive me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nob, east of Eden. Cain is driven further from the garden than his parents were. And he's afraid of vengeance. And so God protects him because vengeance is bad. And it takes away a person's chance to repent. Because what Cain could not have known so far from the time of Jesus is the, the absolute importance of repentance and the untappable depths of God's grace. We cannot exhaust it. So even in the midst of the guilt and shame that Cain is feeling, we worship a God whose love is so strong and so absolute that forgiveness is possible. For Cain, though Jesus hadn't come yet, that forgiveness and grace still depended on the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. For us on this side of the cross, we have the, the blessing of knowing the story. That no matter what we have done, no matter what you have done, no matter what sin you struggle with, no matter how pride has run your life or anger has gotten a hold of you, no matter how many times you've said yes to the sin crouching at your door, never are we outside of the scope of God's grace. Because Jesus is Lord and he welcomes everyone who desires to come, no matter what they've done in the past. Because, and this is what's so amazing about our God, he cares so much more about your future than your past. Forgiveness is available. It's plentiful. You can't run out of it. And his desire is to empower you, strengthen you, call you to an allegiance to him that the next time sin comes crouching at your door and desires to have you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the desire to follow your Lord, you will look at it 
and say no. Pray with me. Father God, you are so good, and we praise you. And we ask for you to help us, to strengthen us today. That in those moments when we come upon a temptation, a trap, sin crouching at our door, Lord, our hearts are infected with that same sin, and it is so hard to resist. In fact, we are incapable of resisting sin without your help. We need you more than we need our next breath, more than we need the next beat of our heart. Lord, we need you and your help. And we praise you that you do not withhold it. It is there if we choose it. And Lord, we praise you that you empower us to say no and call us again and again and again to those opportunities to say no to the evil one and grow further and further toward you. We thank you that you accept us, that you love us, that you delight in us, even though none of us live up to the standards you've called us to. We pray that you help us to never let go of, never take for granted, or never forget to extend to others the grace that you have given us. We pray these things in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.